Judy talks about her time with Milton Erickson. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting about all these people is that they were all pushing an edge in a certain way, whether it was Virginia Satir or um, Milton Erickson or Gregory Bateson. You know, they sort of didn't, as Steve Jobs would say, they didn't, they were not willing to necessarily live the results of somebody else's dogma. And that they were, you know, from my perspective, really on the hero's journey in terms of pushing the edge of what was, you know, family therapy or briefer therapy or hypnotic, you know, hypnosis uh, and hypnotic therapy, that they were all sort of pioneers, first of all. I think they all shared that in common and expertise and, uh, and that that's worth modeling, you know. And so he became a focus of uh, a person that was worthy, you know, from John and Richard's point of view. To, to model, to go, you know, what this guy does is amazing. So, you know, he he was, from my perspective, one of the most sophisticated communicators I've ever met. Um, he had extraordinary, what would you say, he had extraordinary awareness of his own world and was able to manage that in an amazing way. Uh, between this sort of congruence between the the mind and the body in a way. I mean, to be able to teach himself how to walk again, teach himself how to use his body without proprioceptive feedback, which he lost when he had polio, to be able to learn to move an arm, because if he closed his eyes, he didn't know where it was in space. He didn't have that feedback. And so to be able to visually create a feedback loop between the muscle engaged and what's happening, you know, in so the did, movement. So did he never recover the proprioceptive feedback systems? Not that I'm aware of. Wow. You know, he had polio twice. There's three kinds of polio, and he had two out of three. And the first one, he lost, you know, his ability to walk. And he actually, even when he couldn't walk by himself uh, in a boat, canoe, you know, went down the Mississippi River and things like that. I mean, this guy was really, really a pioneer. He's really, really a hero and all those amazing kind of ways and then he taught himself to walk or again and then I think in his 50s that happened when he was a teenager and 16 or 17 when the polio thing was going around you know before the salt vaccine and then um, then he had it again in his 50s I believe mid 50s and then that put him back in a wheelchair mm. and uh, y you know he <laughs> He was just amazing, and to this day, I think if people could um, capture his ability of presence, I mean, yeah, he's an educated man in terms of his field as a psychiatrist, as a doctor with a lot of experience, but just his presence and his um, willingness to be just present and listen and hear. Um, I think Steve Gilligan says it well, you know, that person leads you where they need to go, you know. <laughs> And all you have to do is be present. <laughs> yeah. And he used to say, you know, if, if I could teach, you know, if I could have a person for two or three hours and teach them the, I don't know how many, what, 10 or 12 or 15 basic hypnotic uh, capabilities, you know, like, um, like um, what would you say, um, 
uh, amnesia, anesthesia, post-hypnotic suggestion, um, the ability to see something that's not there or see, see something disappeared that is there, that you gain such control over your own nervous system in a positive way that, you know, problems are just solved on their own, you know, it sort of metaphorically reflects back on anything else, you yeah. know, so. I mean, yeah. I've found that you can do stuff like, uh, I've seen a number of people who've got insomnia because they have noisy neighbors. They're like, you know, my neighbors keep me awake. Ah. And very often I'd do something like uh, create, teach them anesthesia, you know? Yeah. So they have an yeah. experience of what it's like to put a pin in their hand and feel nothing. Yeah. And just let them, their brain just work out what that might mean for their be able okay. to change I mean, other yeah. inputs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the, I think that's the spirit. I think yeah. that's exactly the spirit and I think his ability to task you know to set up uh, a goal for a person that was achievable is very easily to achieve um, that captured inside of that this thing that they said they couldn't do mm. you know it's like I, the metaphor I always use is like being in ballet and the teacher goes okay we're going to do a triple pirouette in this next performance and everybody goes oh holy shit can't do that but what she wants is a good, a good, you know, a good uh, dub, double yeah. spin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So it presupposes, you know, he was so amazing at that, well, and the, he could just see things that other people didn't see. You know. Well, the presupposition, you know, that that then we we get the model from uh, the Milton model is, I think, one of the most extraordinary things. And the use of linguistic presuppositions, which people listening to this hopefully will, will understand. If you don't, yeah. we can tell you about that in another day. But such a powerful way of, of thinking about things. And, and yeah. to know about it gives you also an insight into how it's abused, how people use that all the time to try and well, get people to do stuff in politics. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I agree that there's such beauty uh, between that sort of reflection between the meta model, which goes through precision, and the Milton model that goes through allowing the maximum amount of participation. I mean, having an awareness of that is a little bit like, I remember Maya Angelou, she's a famous American poet, she's passed away this last year, extraordinary woman, and one of her, one of her sort of uh, non-profit contributions that she made was to take children, especially pre-teen and teen, and teach them how to deconstruct an advertisement, <laughs> to understand where the hooks are. Yeah. And I think it's a similar kind of thing, you know, it allows people to take more responsibility for their own integrity in a way, to have that knowledge. And then, you know, it's good against politicians. <laughs> so that then leads us into stuff I've read, which, which I'd be interested in your take on, which is Milton wasn't very pleased about what Richard and John did with his work is is that accurate is that, that's what i've heard I, you know i don't know i don't know that to be a fact okay. i don't know that to be a fact i do know that uh gregory was disappointed but he loved he loved um the first book structure magic and the milton when when he read that he was a little disappointed and his response if i remember correctly was it's shoddy epistemology. <laughs> and so John asked, well, you know, I think John said, well, what makes it shoddy? And he goes, because you're doing what you're talking about. So, you know, when you would read the book, it would sort of take a person or lead a person 
into a kind of different place or an altered state sometimes. I mean, I remember being on a boat and a friend of mine was reading it. We were doing a thing for the Bureau of Land Management and I was with a bunch of biologists out in the Channel Islands for a week counting mammals and I went down, you know, this guy is sitting at the table, you know, in the galley reading this book and about, I went down and I took a nap and I came back and he was still sitting there in the same position, sort of, you know what I'm saying? And so it had that capability built in through the structure of the book and I, I think he, he found that unfair maybe Okay. to do what you're talking about. Now, I also believe, I remember John Grinder saying, having spent time in classrooms with Gregory, that Gregory was always doing what he was talking about. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those things. In terms of Erickson, I mean, I think he, you know, John and Richard were, you know, uh, kind of naughty sometimes, and I think he called them on that a few times. So, you know. Well, I guess they came for, although he was quite a, a revolutionary in his own way he was also part of the system wasn't he He was a you know a psychiatrist worked in institutions and stuff yeah so and i, and I remember you saying that john and and richard were quite radical and rebellious you know and and to some extent that's probably what generated nlp and it probably couldn't have been generated within a system working for the man um, no, no, that's accurate. I think, I mean, Todd, Todd Epstein used to say it was two outlaws modeling three loners. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they were definitely, you know, pushing an edge too. And they had a, you know, a pretty high degree of arrogance in the process, you know. And like I said, it was the 70s and it was the whole guru, guruism of the 70s. You know, everybody was looking for the man, the, the guru, you know. And the stage was set for them to step right in there. <laughs> and, and when we talk, one of my other questions is about, you know, where where is NLP going? You know, what, what's it what's it achieving? What's the next step? And part of that is about research. There there is bits and pieces of NLP research, but not very much. And what is done, which is tend to be done by academics, it to me is not very robust or very very good. Well, I I, I understand that i mean i think that's accurate it's either too small a chunk or too big a chunk or yeah 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 and i agree and, and one of the things you were talking about was that you know i was saying to you why isn't there why wasn't there or isn't there more nlp research and you were saying well hey look at john richard that really really wasn't what they were doing that where they were you know as you say two yeah. two yeah. young guns trying to trying to find their way in the world uh, and and I think to some extent bucking against the system and going yeah let's chuck everything else out and let's start afresh, but we've come to a point now I think where, you know the currency of truth, whatever that yeah. is, is is uh, research. Do you, do you think there's going to be more NLP research? Do you think that's what needs well, to happen? Well, you know I I think there is. I think you know things like the um, uh, like the uh, the group that's back on the east coast with Frank. Burke, you know, I think that was Frank is is John's age, so he's well into his mid seventies now, and he's a research psychologist, and he was turned on to NLP very, very early, in the very early days, and um, it's been sort of his life uh, dream to do, you know, some of that research, and so he, you know, is doing the research and recognition project when he connected up with IASH, because IASH was the one organization that I knew that had some mission to, towards research, and, um, you know, applying 
some of the basic processes and skills to post-traumatic stress. And so I know that that's, that's going on. There may be some other things that I just don't know about too, Phil. But, you know, I think it is happening. Uh, what was there was what was the the woman uh, who wrote got the PhD in NLP from the University of Surrey Jane Matheson I mean I don't know her book but I I know I would wonder if there's research there I don't know I know there's some going on in New Zealand at the moment um, that I've heard about and there's little bits and pieces the other thing that we're seeing a lot of at the moment is NLP turning up uncredited in mainstream uh, so. oh everywhere everywhere everywhere. Yeah. No, it's absolutely true. And that's because, you know, I mean, I, I should say that's because. I would say NLP got a bad name um, uh, for various reasons. And people were afraid to say this is NLP, but they certainly recognized the values of the tools and took the tools in. And then there were a few people like D Dolores Kinder and Omaha who flatly said, you know, I tell them straight up in the beginning, this is what it is and this is where it comes from and, you know, it's valuable and you got to separate personality from the quality of, you know, learning and da 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 So, you know, it's not by accident that that happened. I think it was just out of people going, it's easier just to drop the name and do the work than to, <clears throat> to give it credit. And that's too bad. You know, it's too bad. And I also understand it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I think the problem with it is that if it's not given credit, then it gives more weight to the to the idea that NLP has nothing to offer. The, one of the things I hear a lot is people going, well, there's nothing new in NLP. It's just the same as CBT and all this kind of stuff. What would be your take on that? NLP has nothing well, new. Say that's, that's what absorption is all about, you know. It, it, it's interesting, like I was telling somebody, I might have even said it in the summer about, for example, my two youngest brothers and my youngest sister-in-law are all psychologists. They're all master's degree psychologists working in various, you know, populations. So, you know, one's an administrator, the other two really work in the field, I'd say. And they said that both on the national boards and the state boards of Oklahoma and Texas, there are words, there are questions about NLP. Right. So I go, you don't get much more legit than that in some <laughs> ways, you know, academically speaking. And at the same time, like you say, this other reality is happening. Um, will people make a kind of breakthrough in a way that John and Richard and Frank and others that were around in those very early days make, I don't know. But as long as there's something worth modeling, NLP is about having the skills to build the models. And as long as there's people out modeling excellence or contrasting excellence where with where you want excellence and don't have it, then, you know, NLP will be alive. And and it's a shame that people don't have the courage to go, this is what it is. Yeah, and like... it has been absorbed. It has. I mean, I look at something like, um, what is it we have here? It's called, not Wellspring. It's another kind of process that people go to. It's a little bit more restrictive in the sense that you're pretty, you're not allowed to go out once you're in there, like Forum or Est or something like that. I can't think of the name of it. But, you know, John trained their trainers. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's in the system. There's no doubt about it. And some of it is so human that, you know, you get that idea of the 99th monkey coming around in the sense that these same, same good ideas can kind of come up in various places. 
Sorry, sorry, I was going to say, I think the one thing that's really, really relevant from a research point of view is the fact that sort of a lot of the neuroscience supports it. Yeah, certainly. And, and, and what's interesting is it's been the wrong way around to some extent. The ideas began and then the neuroscience came after, mainly. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And that's how I think about it, too. I go, you know, intuitively, it's like, it's like reading Gregory Bateson. It's pretty hard to go, let me tell you what I just read. But the stuff that's popping in the nervous system all over the place, it's going, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> There's a correctness there, intuitive correctness there. And, you know, the neurologist knew already that, you know, if you move your eyes up and to the right, it stimulates a certain part of the brain. If you move them to the left, if you move this side of the body, that side of the body, they knew that. There was just no practical application. Yeah, and they didn't have the relationship between the movement and the language, et cetera, et cetera, and the event, you know, that happens inside. But they're getting that now. That's what's interesting. And you can catch the final part of this amazing interview with the fascinating Judy Delosia on the next episode of Get the Life You Love Now and Essential NLP podcast. See you there. <laughs>